medical system, including this uh, emergency one, is not set up to deal with war situations like this, right? So whether it's a virus or any complex advanced disease. Hello again, and a warm welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. This is Peter Bowes, and I hope you're doing okay during these extraordinary and very difficult times. Now, this podcast is about human longevity, optimizing our health span, and learning about lifestyle interventions, diet, exercise, mindfulness, whatever it takes to live a long, healthy life. And when coronavirus first hit, I, and maybe like you, had a problem even thinking long-term when there were so many challenges just dealing with today and tomorrow to get through this health crisis. So we're devoting some episodes to talking about COVID-19, but as time goes on and as it becomes ever more clear that this is going to end, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, we will also continue with those hugely important conversations about long-term health. And I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast Professor Walter Longo, Director of the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California, also Director of the Longevity and Cancer Programme at IFOM Institute of Molecular Oncology in Milan in Italy. Walter, it's good to talk to you again. Great to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. You divide your time between the United States and Italy, which I guess gives you quite a unique perspective into the implications and the effect of this virus. Yes, unfortunately, the, they happened, uh, They turned out to be the two places that have some of the worst uh, situations. Um, Italy is now getting at least uh, through the initial uh, hit, uh, and uh, hopefully the same will happen here in the United States soon, yeah. You're talking to us right now from Los Angeles, from your office at uh, USC. Have you spent any time in Italy during the progression of this pandemic? Uh, no, no. We, uh, well, I mean, I was in Italy uh, all the way to until the end of the year, um, around the 30th of December. So probably uh, that was the beginning there, even though Italy did not realize it. Uh, but uh, no, but I've been, of course, in touch with all my colleagues, uh, many of them at the hospitals that are treating the, the corona patients. So, and also with my foundation, we've been um, very active in helping them uh, getting some of this uh, equipment that they, uh, like the masks that they need um, to carry out their, uh, their corona response. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that and, and the work of the foundation. You say you, you talk to your colleagues, and I know you, you've got family back in Italy as, as well. What, what are they telling you? Uh, maybe, first of all, what are your family telling you? Well, my family, uh, I'm mostly telling them, right? So, I mean, we, we actually were one of the labs that historically has worked on, uh, on viral uh, infections and, and uh, immunosenescence and, uh, um, and nutrition so I've been basically uh, from a long time ago, actually, from January, I've been telling them to uh, stay home, isolate. And, um, you know, there was a very good uh, advice from my mom and my father were very old. And uh, luckily, you know, they're fine. They're perfectly fine. And uh, they haven't been exposed. And uh, so that's good. And um, but, yeah, instead, uh, I think with uh, with my friends, uh, there are there are doctors, particularly in the in the Lombardia area, 
um, we've seen, uh, I mean, they were really talking about war, war zone uh, type of situation in Cremona and uh, certain areas of, around Bergamo. And uh, so this is what now uh, New York is experiencing, uh, or at least certain areas of New York. And, and that uh, we started to hear that about a month and a half ago or certainly a month ago in, uh, in this specific area. So my colleagues there were fairly desperate and, and, and looking for alternatives. And, um, you know, was there something that could help them? For example, chloroquine is something that I first, uh, we were first discussing a month and a half ago uh, with, with these doctors. And, and unfortunately, um, you don't always have the, the benefit of uh, having, um, you know, clear and conclusive results uh, when, when you have to make a decision you know, should you use something like chloroquine uh, in combination with antibiotics for um, uh, for patients that, that have uh, these uh, uh, pneumonia symptoms? There's a lot of a lot of talk here about chloroquine and and criticism that it's perhaps been the positive implications or the positive potential effect of uh, the use of chloroquine in combination with other drugs um, that it may well have given some people false hope. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think that um, that is the the problem with the system. The system is not really the medical system, including this uh, emergency one, is not set up to deal with war situations like this, right? So whether it's a virus or any complex advanced disease, you know, it could be cancer, it could be autoimmunities. Um, so so yeah, that, that's a problem. Meaning that if somebody something like chloroquine comes around. There is really not the, pers- the scientific personality. I think it should be much more scientific than medical, right? We're lacking it, and, and this has been very obvious in the media. You know, the scientists are almost completely absent. Uh, the whole discussion is governed by politicians and doctors. And there's nothing wrong with the two, but they're just missing the third. You know, the scientists that can look at the chloroquine and the, the clinical results, the basic results, and make a... a a, f- a f- very quick decision, a much quicker decision that you will get uh, by, you know, let's say, doing a large randomized trial. I mean, of course, everybody wants that. But, uh, you know, let's say a month and a half ago um, in Cremona, did you have the benefit when somebody was about to die to, to wait for that randomized clinical trial? So, so now, if the scientists had been involved, I think we would have done a much quicker job in saying, um, well, you know, use it only in this situation when the patient is out of options, and uh, you know, and this is not what happened. And now you're hearing, for example, I forget whether it's Michigan or, or there's trials now for prevention, right? So now you can say, wait a minute, um, you know, if it does have you know side effects like heart problems, what are they, and should they be using it for prevention in medical personnel, you know? Uh, I don't know, but I'm saying the, 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 I think it's unfortunate that the, the, the scientific community is not much, much more hands-on and much more present in the, in the media because this is causing a direct uh, uh, effect on the, um, 
and people that are listening. So you introduce an interesting new element here, talking about the, the difference, as you see it, between scientists and doctors. And then, of course, the third element with this particular saga is politicians. But just focusing on the difference between doctors and, and scientists. And I know you and I have talked about this in the past, talking about dietary interventions and, and, that, and your work as, as it relates to, to fasting. And maybe just for people listening, explain how you see the the difference between doctors and scientists because a lot of people I think will have seen those news briefings at the White House with the president standing there surrounded by his team who are generally doctors but people might actually think well they're kind of scientists as well they're from a, a scientific background well not necessarily no right I mean I mean obviously a scientist can be uh, an MD right there could be there, there are lots of MD that are scientists they have to go through the training and, and the science but an MD is not a scientist uh, is a medical doctor, right? So it's very, very different. So, so then the question is, what are we discussing? If you're talking about spreading the virus, uh, it's a very complex, you know, you need mathematicians, you need epidemiologists, you need people that are really trained to, to think like that. Uh, and so that's who you should have talking there, you know? Now you can pick the ones that also can relate that to the medical, and you can have a medical doctor, uh, and let's say an emergency room uh, specialist uh, present, but I'm seeing almost a complete lack of, of uh, you know, specialists that are trained in solving problems like this, particularly with a very fast-moving target, you know. Uh, so, for example, if you have um, the typical, uh, you know, uh, identifying a subject and following all the people that, that were in contact with him, uh, now the science is completely revolutionized by the fact that you have the symptoms much later than you become infected, right? So now the scientist comes in, a particular mathematician that is used to this, he comes in and says, well, all the rules change now because uh, what used to be for something like Ebola is no longer valid here. So, so you know, you need to be able to react with that kind of uh, knowledge of the topic instead of saying something that... Yes, it's 20 years old. It used to work very well with Ebola, but it could be completely worthless for this particular virus, right? And, um, and so there is so many examples, like, for example, how do you clean a mask? Well, but there's actual scientific data on how you kill a double-stranded RNA uh, virus, right? And, uh, and, and there's a scientific data about, you know, how you, with any type of, of organism, how you prevent it from... Uh, infecting other areas, are you sterilized? Uh, so, you know, you, what you hear is a lot of ideas, you know, from, from medical doctors and almost no scientific data. You rarely hear, okay, for example, there are data showing that you can microwave uh, material and in so many minutes, it's a, a certain level of, of, of a certain power level uh, you can uh, eliminate virtually all uh, viruses, right? Of course, the mask may have some metal parts, right? But what would have been appreciated, I think, by a lot of people would be like, there are no masks, okay? So what do we do? That should have happened a month and a half ago, right? But get the scientists out and say, how do you, even if you have a single mask or zero, right? What do you do to make sure you don't get infected? And another thing, it was, I thought it was really entertaining for months, we, the United States and the world kept talking about with the, lots of Asian uh, uh, specialists saying, wear the mask, right? And, 
And the United States particularly kept talking about the, uh, the utility, the usefulness of the mask in uh, somebody getting infected. So if, some, if the virus is out there, you know, you have an N95 or some other mask, are you going to get infected or not? With very little discussion instead about emission, right? So what about uh, the virus gets out? So a simple, you know, even improvised mask will have tremendously reduced uh, that, you know, virus, viral spread had we listened to the Asian specialist. And so for at least a good month, uh, the recommendation in the United States by lots of doctors was don't wear the mask and to, to not take it away potentially from, from the hospital. And that's great. They should have said, yeah, don't wear an N95 mask, but wear a scarf, you know, wear whatever uh, that, that can prevent the virus from getting out there. Trim, big mistake, right? Why did anybody come out there and say, well, you know, this is crazy. It's, I think the right type of scientist will have been able to say this. I mean, if I figured it out, and I'm not an expert in, in, in virology, uh, I think, you know, any expert will have said, come on, you know, of course you have to wear a mask, uh, any kind. Don't take the N95 away from doctors, but go ahead and wear masks in January, you know, <laughs> or, or certainly at the beginning of, of March, not now. Yeah, know? this is the narrative, of course, that we're hearing quite a lot now, that valuable time was lost, especially in the United States, maybe a month, maybe two months in terms of the advice that was being given to people that might have helped to slow the spread of the virus because of some of the basic things that we could do to help ourselves. Yeah, and it was lost because of lack of scientists, right? Had the people, I remember at least a month, a month and a half ago, there was somebody from Hong Kong. He had gone through it. He knew, he's a scientist, and he was like, I don't know, we came up with this bad idea of now wearing masks. Of course you have to wear a mask and do it now, you know? And so now imagine all the people that got infected for a simple piece of information that could have been given by any science, scientist with expertise. Unbelievably, it was not given by scientists here in the United States, or the ones that were in charge. Uh, but uh, anybody would have been able to say, hey, you got nothing to lose by doing this. Do it. Do it all the time. And uh, it, it wasn't done. And, and uh, you know, so certainly New York is... Is paying the consequences with uh, thousands of deaths. I'm interested in, you live in Los Angeles, so do I, interested in your view on the varying degrees to which this virus seems to have spread geographically. Just looking at the United States, you mentioned New York, which has been the epicenter of the outbreak in the US. Look at a state like California, where the numbers are significantly lower and other parts of the country as well, Washington State as well. Is there anything that you can pinpoint to explain that? I'm speculating, right? But so again, uh, I'm not an expert uh, in, in, in this type of uh, uh, situations, but uh, I speculate, having seen it in New York uh, and having seen it in Bergamo, Milan, et cetera, et cetera, it's probably multifactorial. So uh, yeah. one of them being the density, um, one of them being the social type of aspects of it, you know, gatherings like Italians in New York, uh, not just Italians, but lots of people in New York, they, they, they tend to get together, big groups, et cetera, et cetera. Families, right? Uh, both New York and, 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 and these dense areas of Italy. Um, and also, um, um, yeah, so those, those are the, the main ones and uh, potentially also pollution, right? So, 
There's a lot of talk about pollution. Uh, there's, there's some of the areas that get hit the most in Italy, and certainly I will imagine some of these areas in New York is high pollution levels. And, uh, and now, you know, I don't know how much of it is speculation, how much of it is reality, but it could have to do with, um, you know, um, inflammation in the lungs. Uh, but it could also be the actual spreading of the virus. Right? There's now some speculation about could the virus be carried by certain particles. You know, I'm not saying that, that that's known or not, but that's certainly right. something that, that has been uh, discussed. Uh, um, and so, yeah, so the, the Bergamo, Brescia, Milan area and the Queens, uh, Brooklyn, uh, you know, Manhattan areas have lots, lots of, uh, uh, of these common denominators. You mentioned Create Cures, your foundation, and you're doing some work to try to help the situation now. Uh, obviously, aptly named Create Cures, everyone wants a cure. I don't think, I, don't, I assume you're not actively involved in trying to find a cure. But what are you doing to, you mentioned helping medical workers in Italy. Yes, uh, we did uh, uh, fundraising uh, for, um, you know, for masks and uh, other protective equipment and, uh, and started not just the fundraising, but the people at the foundation also helped the, the uh, hospitals in, in Italy. And now we're doing it here, uh, identify the source, uh, uh, somebody that, that made the masks. Uh, for example, we got some of them from China, shipped directly to Italy. Um, yeah, so the, it's both the, the funds and also the uh, looking for reputable sources so that we can get the, the, uh, the equipment to the, to, to the doctors in, in those hospitals. That's good. Just more generally then, we haven't in our past interviews talked too much about Create Cures. I know this is the foundation where you put your own personal money that you make from the diet that you devised. More generally, what kind of work is Create Cures doing right now? Well, Curie Cures, um, in, both in Italy and the United States, um, it's uh, a uh, education, I mean, assistance to patients, you know, kind of like what we were discussing earlier. Um, you know, we haven't done it for, for Corona because we don't have the expertise, but certainly cancer, autoimmunities, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Um, you know, we have registered dietitians. Now we have a, we're uh, opening a clinic in, in Santa Monica, uh, it's going to have physicians that have that type of integrative uh, uh, medicine expertise. And so the idea is to do what I just said, uh, have the molecular biologist, the registered dietitian, and the physician working together as a team, each covering its own territory, right? So, um, so the, the point being that if you're a doctor, you're bombarded with, with uh, patients, um, and you really have barely time to handle the patient. So you need the molecular biologist to start looking at, you know, what clinical trials are available. Uh, what, is particularly, what is particular about this patient uh, that um, may require a different type of treatment, maybe a novel type of treatment. So do the, the whole the support uh, work that the, the physician then can use to make a decision. Um, and, and I think uh, that's really... Um, you know, the future of medicine is to have the molecular biology. It's not just molecular biology, but say, you know, uh, PhDs trained uh, to support uh, the, uh, the medical practice. And, um, and then finally, of course, the registered dietitian uh, that implements the, the nutritional um, recommendations of, of the doctor. Yeah. So the doctor is still in, char- is still in charge of the clinic, but uh, uh, the PhD is having a, a, a big role in uh, 
personalizing and uh, making sure that uh, all the all the science uh, and all the clinical uh, work that has been done uh, is being uh, utilized for the patient. So that's one of the the the, the focuses of the foundation. The other one is uh, education in children. So we think it's really important uh, uh, to start educating. Uh, for example, in Italy, we saw uh, and we were shocked to see that Italian children not only you know obesity and overweight wise they're getting very close to the United States, but they're also eating three to four times more proteins than recommended by pediatric pediatric association around the world, three to four hundred percent. That's crazy, and and what was even more crazy, and I will assume is very similar in the United States, is that the pediatrician were completely unaware of this. Uh, so again, you know the science. So had they had the PhD type. In, you know, it doesn't even have to be in the office, but let's say for every 10 physicians, uh, there was at least one PhD that from time to time, you know, gave them uh, suggestions on how to improve the care of the children. Uh, they will, of course, have told them, look, most of your patients, or most of the children uh, that you're following are eating three, four hundred percent of the protein level that is recommended by, by the pediatricians. I can see, and just coming back to our earlier conversation, I can see the one of the potential areas of conflict here when you talk about scientists, molecular biologists working alongside doctors, and of course, with coronavirus, we have the additional element of working alongside politicians as well. And that is the the time scale that each of these individuals work on. Science, by its very nature, can sometimes be a, a very long and protracted process to to do experiments, to get results, to analyze results, to come up with new ideas. Whereas doctors perhaps are more focused on the here and now, and as you said, curing the patient, making them feel better. And of course, a politician has other incentives as well that are often based on time and, and, and getting things done. You can see why the at least the two, the scientist and the doctor, may not be on the same wavelength sometimes. No, I mean, you know, no, I don't see it because I do this every day. You know, I, I am that scientist that, that spends a lot of time with hundreds of physicians. Uh, many clin- we have 25 clinical trials going, and it works very well. Believe me, when, when we get together, it's just incredible what, uh, what this team does, you know. Uh, so, yeah, no, I don't see it. I see the opposite. I see it, how useful it would be to the patients, whether it's coronavirus or, or anything else, to have this team you know, and, and most of PhDs are underpaid anyways. Of course, we're talking about a different category of PhD. We're not talking about somebody that's doing bench work, uh, you know, in a lab and then once in a while, part-time going, going to, uh, you know, help a, a physician. We're talking about PhDs that have been trained, let's say, in molecular oncology, molecular cardiology, et cetera, et cetera. They are now in the clinic, you know, spending all the time supporting the physician, you know. So it's a, it's a, in a non-existent category of PhDs, but those would be the type of PhDs that understand, you know, microbiome analysis, metabolome analysis, uh, you know, maybe artificial intelligence applied to, to patients, uh, um, you know, in this case, epidemiology, spreading of the virus, uh, you know, contamination of masks, you know, that, that kind of stuff, right? You see now, if, if you have a microbiologist, a virologist in a clinic, let's say that, that a patient or a thousand patients call a, a doctor, right? You know, the, your regular internal medicine doctor, and they ask questions about the mask, the, you know, shall I wear a scarf? 
I mean, what is the doctor going to know about that, right? A little bit, but not very much. They're not trained for it. Now, a virologist or somebody that's trained in microbiology, you know, certainly forming a team with the doctor, now all of a sudden you may get a real answer, you know? Uh, so, yeah. So you see just in this situation what a tremendous difference uh, this will have made. And it doesn't mean, you know, in our clinic, the PhD will not see, uh, will not see patients, right? It'll be still the doctor. The doctor still makes the decision, but now the doctor makes the decision with this information. In this case, the PhD will have said, hey, you know, don't, uh, don't do this uh, practice of decontaminating the food because you're going to end up contaminating even more. And, you know, some of these videos were suggesting that, um, you know, because they were made by uh, physicians that they were improvising techniques, uh, sterilization techniques. And, and uh, that's not good. Yeah. Let me uh, just change the subject slightly. One question that uh, a number of people have raised with me in, in terms of fasting, and uh, you've devised the fasting mimicking diet, uh, people have been wondering whether during these times when there is the threat of this virus attacking our bodies and when our immune system is all important, is now a good time to adopt a fasting regime? Well, you know, we've been funded by the U.S. government and by the Italian uh, foundations uh, um, to use the FMD uh, to boost the immune system, right? So now we have uh, um, two grants and uh, um, for that purpose. In, in mice, we've already shown this to be very effective uh, in making the, the mice immune system uh, more youthful. And, uh, but it is tri- it's a little bit tricky uh, because during the, I mean, the, so the, the idea of the trial is to do two FMDs during the summer and then, uh, in, and then immunize uh, patients uh, right after uh, and look at how much antibody is produced and whether they get the flu or not. Right? So that, that's a trial that has been funded both, both here in the United States by the NIH and in Italy by the Caripo Bank. Um, now the, the issue is, and so we don't know what the answer is. We know for mice, we don't know for people. Uh, right. Now the issue is, what if, we, what if you get infected while you are on the diet, right? Well, there's a slight reduction in certain, in white blood cell um, in, in people, uh, let's say day five, um, and we have no idea what that would mean, uh, you know, for, uh, for the ability of a coronavirus to infect someone. So the answer is like, Acutely, um, I will only do it if you, let's say, you stay home for those five days. You don't go to the grocery store. Don't get exposed. Uh, so I think it's perfectly fine if you're isolated like that uh, to do it. Um, it may be fine no matter what, but uh, you know because there is a slight reduction in the white blood cells, which remain in the normal range, uh, probably I wouldn't, uh, um, certainly wouldn't do it more than once in this period. And uh, I would be very careful at being fairly, um, you know, isolated uh, so that you minimize your chance of, let's say, you know, the, the time I would be concerned would be day four and five or so day three, four and five of the, of the FMD. So during those three days, it could it be that the slight reduction in certain uh, uh, white blood cells could make the, the virus uh, uh, more able to invade. I mean, we don't know, but you know, out of cautious, uh, cautiousness, uh, a caution, um, 
the uh, it's probably better to uh, be isolated. Uh, if you are going to do it. Yeah, that was my thought, because having done that, your five-day diet a number of times, the, the challenge is always for me is to, five, to find a suitable five days to do it, to fit it into my schedule when I'm not travelling, because if you're travelling around using public transport away from home, away from the stove in your kitchen, it isn't always the easiest time to, to do that kind of diet. So I'm isolated right now. I'm working from home, have been for weeks. So I suppose in, in that kind of scenario, when is, well, there's very, very little chance that you're going to come in contact with a, a virus like this, it could be actually quite a good time. Yeah. And also, but, but keep in mind, should you feel infected or, get, or uh, know that you are infected or uh, realize that you've just been exposed to, say, three people that are infected, stop the diet, you know? If you think there is any reason to think you got infected or you've been exposed, uh, then start eating normally again. Why? We know that, you know, sugars and proteins um, are probably uh, are needed, at least as far as we know right now, are needed uh, to support the immune system. And, um, you know, it might even have a role against the virus. We don't know. Uh, but, uh, but so, yeah, so if, it, if you know you're infected, uh, then stop any type of diet, not just the FMD, but any type of restrictive diet uh, uh, because um, it could be a problem. Just one more question, and this is going to be a slightly shorter podcast than we usually do because we are recording remotely. I uh, interviewed for the podcast just a few episodes ago Joseph Antoon at El Nutra, and we talked about the progression of the diet. One subject that interests me is now that you have the benefit of, of much more data in terms of the number of people who've used this diet and gone through the cycle many, many times compared with, well, for example, when I first did it back in 2013 with you. Of you're course, a pioneer, of- that's right. You're probably the, you're <laughs> like uh, patient number uh, number one, uh, that like that. at least yeah. the number one that has done it because you were in the original clinical trial. And then I think you were doing it every couple of months, right? So it, I was, yeah, yeah. really uh, yeah. impressive, yeah. And, and have continued to, maybe not quite as frequently, but I do have actually a box in my office floor and I've just been waiting for the, uh, the most opportune time to do that. So I was going to ask you, in terms of the benefit now that you have of, of many, many people around the world having done the diet, what have you learned that perhaps you didn't know in those early days? And, and the one thing that interests me is the, the variety of foods have changed and, and improved and that there is more variety now. That was always a, a stumbling block for me is, I suppose, the, the boredom factor of doing the same thing over and over again. Is that an issue that has come up and you've managed to resolve through the experiences of lots of people? Well, you know, keep in mind that... Um the prolonged FMD uh, should probably be done on average three or four times a year, right? So uh, I think I, I eat the same things over and over uh, every week. Uh, maybe the same, you know, 15 things, right? So, so yeah, so the, I think that um, for most people, they're not doing it, let's say, once a month. Uh, this, uh, this is not really an issue. It's more an issue of uh, is there something that you don't like and then, uh, and of course, the, I think the company is taking care of that. If somebody says uh, I, there is a, something that I'm allergic to, or that I am intolerant, or I just cannot eat, you know. So, uh, as far as uh, you know, repeating it every four months, I don't think it matters to most people. If they had uh, you know five days or something, that it's always the same. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, we are about to publish on an, a survey of, uh, I think, uh, three or 400 physicians reporting on 4,000 patients. Uh, this was very important to us to, uh, to look at safety and compliance and uh, really d- d- don't see, uh, don't see uh, very, I mean, you see some minor side effects like headaches, um, and, uh, but you don't really, we didn't see grade three, grade four uh, type side effects, very, very rare. Uh, so that's very good news, um, considering that the great majority of drugs are uh, are going to have some some major side effects in the long run. And um, yeah, and I, I think it was also very good uh, uh, my decision to um, to make it less strong than it could be. So prolong could be stronger, could be tougher. And I always said uh, I, I'd rather get a little bit less less of an effect but uh, maximize the safety. And I think they are thinking, for example, the ketogenic uh, response, right? So lots of people say, why, why don't my ketone bodies get to five millimolar? Well, we don't want your ketone bodies to get to five millimolar. Uh, we want them to get higher, um, but we do not want to have this yo-yo uh, situation going back and forth from very high ketone bodies to very low. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're working very hard, not just making this effective, but making it very safe. So after 20 years, we don't get anybody to say, hey, you know, I have this problem because of, of, of this uh, frequent use of, of this uh, uh, diet. It uh, continues to be fascinating. Looking forward to seeing that new paper and uh, those results from that. It sounds like quite a, a large study. Yeah, well, this year is going uh, to be what I call the end of the beginning for... Uh, for the cancer part, right? So, um, and potentially for for the uh, pre-diabetes metabolic part, right? So we're gonna have multiple trials, uh, I think three or four trials for cancer before the end of the year uh, published and uh, and, uh, and several more for uh, diabetes, pre-diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Um, so yeah, so th- this is gonna be a, a very important year. I cannot uh, anticipate the results, but uh, a very important year for now many hospitals uh, having tested these uh, these uh, fasting making diets uh, for different type of uh, cancer and uh, um, cardiometabolic uh, diseases. Well hopefully maybe at the end of the year we can come back and talk again. Walter it's always good to talk to you. Stay safe and thanks very much. Well thank you, you too. Walter Longo, director of the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California, also director of the Longevity and Cancer Program at EFOM Institute of Molecular Oncology in Milan. And if you'd like to listen to our earlier interviews about longevity and fasting in particular, I'll put the details into the show notes for this episode at our website, llamapodcast.com, llama being the acronym we use for Live Long and Master Aging, so that's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. You'll also find us in social media at Lama Podcast, and you can get in touch with me directly via Twitter at Peter Bowes. As ever, thank you very much for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time.
Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.